then, I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw a holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, See, the home of God is among mortals. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death will be no more. Mourning and crying and pain will be no more. For the first things have passed away. And the one who was seated on the throne said, See, I am making all things new. Also, he said, write this, for these words are trustworthy, and they are true. Then he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha, and I am the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give water as a gift from the spring of the water of life. Those who conquer will inherit these things. And I will be their God, and they will be my children. Welcome to Stone Point. Can we just give the Lord a hand? Amen. So uh, we are grateful that you're here, um, and we're so grateful for those that are joining us on uh, the campus in Edgewood, just nine miles down the road. We're so grateful uh, for all that God is doing there, and uh, we're thankful for Pastor Brian and his leadership on that campus and just the difference that he makes in so many lives. And uh, Today, we are diving into a new teaching series in the book of Revelation. Uh, And if you have your Bibles, uh, then what you can do is you can uh, flip through them. And I want you to go to the very last book of your Bible. Uh, If you get to the table of contents, you've gone too far, right? So uh, when I say table of contents, I really mean like your encyclopedia and dictionary for all your word. And so go back to your left, okay? Uh, But once you get there, I want you to go to Revelation chapter 22. Revelation chapter 22. And... I want to dive in there a little bit. And as we uh, have you turn there, here's, here's what I want to just real quick show of hands. Okay, audience participation today. You ready for this? How many of you have never, ever been in a church that has taught the book of Revelation? You've never been in, uh, you've never been in it. So you've never been in a church. Okay, some of you are lying. Okay, and here's why. Um, most churches never t- teach the book of Revelation ever. And here's why. The, the, the thought process in the book of Revelation is, is that it's just too too difficult, that there's just too many encrypted messages and there's too many things that we can't understand and why would we even bother? And so the thought process for so many people is, is that God has given us a written or revealed word for 65 books in our Bible, but once you get to that 66th book, it's just too much. And so we just don't teach it, okay? So let me just, by, just by audience participation, show of hands, you've never seen or heard The book of Revelation taught all the way from cover to cover in Revelation 1 to chapter 22 in a church that you've attended. Would you raise your hand? Awesome. Okay, that's probably a little bit more accurate. Here's the deal. It's 
it's a little bit daunting. Uh, and the reason it's daunting is because there's lots of imagery. And John, uh, the guy who writes the book, an apostle of, of Jesus, uh, he, he gives us a lot to think about. And uh, as you look over the series of Revelation, what you're going to see is you're going to see basically a, a seven-year period that's called the tribulation period. At the, there's not only this, but there's also um, there's places like Gog and Magog that's going to be mentioned. And not only that, you've also got like, uh, you've got angelic beings, you've got things that come out of the abyss, you've got all this destruction and calamity throughout the earth, you've got this guy called the Antichrist, you've got the beast, you got a false prophet, you got a woman, you got a dragon, you got all these different things. And you're like, man, what in the world are, are, are all these things? And what I want you to realize is that we dive in, I believe that, that God has given us the uh, wisdom and the ability to discern and understand all of it. Matter of fact, in Revelation chapter 22, if you look just at verse six, uh, John is going to close out the book of Revelation. And verse six, he says, and he said to me, speaking of an angel that had given him all of this vision. He says, the words are trustworthy and true. And the Lord, the God of the spirits of the prophets has sent his angel to show his servants what, what must soon take place. So what he says is he goes, hey, the things that I've seen and the things that I've understood, John says, these are trustworthy and true. You should pay attention to them. Verse seven says, and behold, I am coming soon, meaning Jesus is coming soon. So blessed is the one who keeps the word of the prophecy of this book. So the reason that the prophecy of this book is given is so that you and I would keep it. The reason I read that to you is this, the very last chapter of your Bible, the angel of the Lord is telling us, hey, Jesus is coming soon. He's given us a written revealed word that not only has he given it to us, but we should seek to understand it. And as we seek to understand it, we will do well to live by it. And so I, I literally, not too long ago, was working through the book of Revelation. I've done this over the last year with a group of guys on Friday mornings. And uh, I've had several different people over the course of the last couple of years just go, hey, would you ever teach us through that? And, and I go, you know what? I, I might would do that. And I've just kind of prayed about it. I've pondered about it. I've thought about it. And, and here's the deal. I've decided that I will teach through, through it. And here's a couple things that you need to know. Number one is I'm going to teach through the second coming that you better live as if you believe that there was a first coming. So what I'm saying is I'm not going to get you fat on knowledge so you can talk about and speculate about the second coming of Jesus when you're not doing everything you can in your power to reach your neighbor with the first coming of Jesus. And so if you don't talk about Jesus a whole lot of your workplace, maybe this will be an open door and an opportunity to hear about what you're learning. But the bottom line is we ought to be living for the first coming. And so if we're not living for the first coming, listen, don't get fat on knowledge about the second coming. The second thing is we do this, we need to be prayerfully asking God to rightly divide the word of truth to us. We need to ask for God's wisdom because the goal is not to speculate here. The goal is not to go, hey, you know what? I think this might be this way or hey, this is my opinion on this. Yes, I'm gonna give you some opinions. I'm gonna give you a handful of things that I think that might be and what I believe they, 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 they mean. And you can take it and discover for yourself, but you have to ask for wisdom and grace and guidance there. Because the point is, is to rightly divide the word of truth so that we could live in it. Amen? And thirdly, here's the third thing is we're gonna dive into this thing. We're gonna see what, what it is that John is talking about, this revealed word. Then here's the deal you need to hear most. We do not argue here at Stone Point over non-essentials. There are things that the book of Revelation is going to say that I have an opinion on and you may have an opinion on. And praise God, they're opinions. 
but they're not factual and I can't prove them. Although I could make a dogmatic stance, I can't prove it with all 100% certainty. And so I'm gonna be careful to not make dogmatic stances. What I'm gonna be careful to do is say, hey, this is what it could mean. Here's three options. This is the one I personally choose. And then you gotta decide for yourself. Here's the end of the day. Here's what I do know. And this is essential. You ready for it? I know that I am a sinner. I am filthy, sick. I'm a wretched man at my core. I know that because of Jesus and the perfect work of the cross, he has given me a new life in him, a redemption story to where I can live for Christ. He has given me the revealed word. Second Peter 1 says he's given me all things that pertain to life and godliness. This is the word of God. I seek to rightly divide it. I seek to give you all that you can possibly eat. And so I want you to know that as we do that, I'm I'm going to say some things, and as I do, I want you to know that the most essential thing is, is this, the work of Jesus in Revelation. And the work of Jesus on the cross is what gives us the book of Revelation. And so let's just hang there, and then everything else, we go, you know what? We could talk about it over a cup of coffee. At the end of the day, neither one of us is going to be right, because we don't know for sure. But we, we will do our best to give you all sides. Amen? So if you can agree with those things, we can agree that the first coming is very important. We should live by it. Two, we should seek God's wisdom. And three, we're not going to argue about non-essentials. Then I am all for it. If at any point in this whole series that we seem to distort that or confuse that, then I have the permission to stop it so that we can talk about what right living should be. And that's not disfactions or arguing or quarrels in the local church. It is simply what? Understanding the gospel, the grace of Jesus and living in that. Can I get a witness? Amen. (laughs) And so if we can hang in that, then I am game to dive in. And here's why it's important. It's because if you look at Revelation 22, it goes on to say, look at verse 10. It says, and he said to me, do not seal up the words of the prophecy in this book for the time is near. Meaning this is a revealed word of truth. Don't seal it up for the word of God, the time is near, okay? And then at verse 11, it says, let the evil doer still do evil and the filthy still be filthy and the righteous still do right and the holy still be holy. Behold, I am coming soon, bringing my recompense with, with me to repay each one for what he's done. For those of us who are in Christ, it says in Romans chapter eight, verse one, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ. But listen, those who are not in Christ will stand condemned and Jesus will come back and he will judge judiciously and he will rightly divide not only the word of truth, but everyone who has not lived by it. He is coming, he is coming soon. And so the goal is, hey, you ought to be ready. We ought to be loving and living for him. Why? Because there are those who are filthy and unrighteous and they will continue to live in the world. And we are holy, blameless, set apart. Revelation 19, 9, 8 and 9 says that we should be fine linen, white and clean, that we should be the bride of Christ, beautifully adorned for her husband, the perfect one. And so we should live for that. And what do we do? We live with the expectation. Verse 13, uh, it says that I am the Alpha and the Omega, as Jesus would proclaim time and time again throughout the scriptures, but also in this book, he is the beginning and the end. Blessed are those who wash their robes so they may have the right to the tree of life and they may enter the city by the gates. What that saying is, is the end of days, the ancient of days will come back. He will receive those that he loves to himself. And as he does that, and he, he creates this new city, this new Jerusalem, this city. He goes, there are going to be some that are going to be outside of the city and there are going to be some that are in the city. Those that are in the city are going to be the ones that their, their robes have been washed clean. And you know how they're washed clean? Not by your good works, not by you going to church, not by your great merit, but by Jesus and the perfect work on the cross. Your robe is washed clean. You have an inheritance that will never spoil or fade away is what Peter says. And because of that, we have a new life in Christ and we have an eternity that is kept 
in heaven for us. But outside, verse 15, are the dogs, the sorcerers, the sexually immoral, the murderers, the idolaters, and everyone who loves and practices falsehood. Outside of those are the ones who will not inherit eternal life. And so the idea is this, throughout scripture, you will see that there are those who are gathered by Jesus. We are the wheat, and then there is the shaft that is going to be blown away. Jesus would say it another way, at the last day, I'm going to gather the sheep and the goats. The sheep are the ones, John 10, who hear and follow him. They know his voice. The goats are the ones that will be swept away. And so at the end of the days, there is going to be a new heaven, a new earth, and Jesus is ready to receive those who are his. And those who are not here, his, will ultimately be swept away for all of eternity. That's what it says. And then verse 17, the spirit and the bride say, come and let those who hear come and let those who are thirsty come and let those who desire to take the water of life without price, let them come. And then verse 18, this is key. I warn everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book, if anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues described in this book. Remember, if you, if you can understand the first 65 books and all of their totality, then you could probably understand the 66. And what he's saying is, is this, he goes, if you add to this book and he's not speaking of revelation, he's speaking of the Bible the one that pertains to life and God. If you add to it, he goes, I'm going to add to the plagues of this book on you. Meaning what Pharaoh experienced was pretty bad. I'm going to add it to you. The reason why is he goes, this is a very serious mandate. I think that's a proclamation of those who preach the word. I think it's a, to help pastors and teachers and those who would consider to teach this word, to rightly divide the word of truth. I think that's a, a warning to them. But here's the biggest warning. The biggest warning is to those who would claim to at some point have a divine word of truth from God. For instance, Joseph Smith claimed to have a divine word of truth. No, the book of Revelation says, no, you don't get another word. It's shut. It's done. And so don't seal it in the sense of that, teach it, make sure the hearers hear it, but it is done, it's finished. So you don't get a Joseph Smith who somehow has a revelation from God and he's got a new word to add to it. You don't get a new word. John goes, this is the final word. You don't get a Muhammad who somehow is a prophet of God. He's got something that you and I don't have. And so it kind of wipes out a world religion there. Do you understand? Let me explain something. It means that right now and today, you don't have a Jesus who's gonna pop up in Southern Mexico Say, hey, hola, hermano, I got a new word. No, you don't get that. You don't get a new Jesus. He doesn't get to claim that he's the second incarnate, of, uh, incarnate picture of Jesus in Southern Mexico. So, hey, listen to me and give to my church. No, you don't get that. What you should do from that is run. Run when people say, hey, I've got a new word from God. And so when it comes back down to it, you need to be careful to say, hey, you know what? I got a new word from God. What does that mean? You got a new feeling? That you, saw, that you saw him in a burning bush? Because God speaks in three ways. He speaks through his word, as you rightly divide the word of truth. He speaks through godly counsel, people who know and understand, and he speaks through the power of the Holy Spirit in your life. He's not gonna give you some written revelation on the wall. It's not gonna be a handwriting on the wall, Daniel 5 experience anymore. Why? Because it's, it's clearly done and revealed. Now for that right there, you may go, I mean, I, I don't know if I agree with that. And that's, that's okay, but I would consider that an essential. And the reason why is because this is God's word. This is how he reveals himself. And so don't add to it, meaning you don't get more prophets today. And then he says, and he who testifies these things say, surely I am coming soon. Amen. Come Lord Jesus, the grace of the Lord be with us. Amen. Got me? So here's, here's the message of chapter 22. Jesus is coming soon. 
live for him in purity until he does. Make sure that you don't add to the word of truth. Make sure you live and abide by the word, the counsel of his truth, and do everything in your power to reach people with the first coming of Christ until he comes again. Amen? Okay, let's close and go home. Awesome. Cool. Now let's pray and let's just ask God to kind of help us understand chapter one because I'm going to run through it and I literally have 24 minutes to do it. And so you better hang on fast. If you've got a pen, I encourage you to write. If you don't have a pen, I encourage you to get one soon. And don't forget to shop at your local stores like Family Dollar or Dollar General or Brookshire's or any other place that you can get a notebook because over the next handful of weeks, it would be helpful for you to take some really solid notes. Amen. And if you don't like teaching and you really prefer preaching, you may have to go somewhere else in the next few weeks because I'm going to teach you a lot. And every now and then I'll preach. And every now and then I'm sure I'll meddle a little bit. But okay, let's pray. God, we love you. We thank you. And we ask God that you would use this time to teach us, give us eyes to see and ears to hear. In Jesus' name, we pray. Amen. So if you got your Bible, you can turn to Revelation chapter 1 and verse 1. It says, the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servant the things that must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant, John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. And so here it is, we see um, that this angelic being came to John in verse eight, we're gonna see that he came uh, to him while he was on the island of Patmos uh, in the Western uh, part of, of uh, Asia Minor. And so as he's there near the Aegean Sea, a place that's very desolate, the word of God came and, and an angel said, hey, I've got a, a written word. Do well to write it down. Pay attention to this. It's a revelation of sorts. And this revelation right there in the, in the Hebrew or in the uh, Greek literally just means the word apocalypsis, which is where we get the word what? Apocalypse. Let's do that one more time. What is it? See, I was doing that more for the Edgewood campus than anybody, okay? So the apocalypse, and you would think apocalypse means, okay, it must mean end times, because that's what you think about apocalypse. You think about big war, and you think about the end of days and everything blowing up. And here's the deal. Apocalypse literally means a revelation or an unveiling. It means to take something that seems to be very cloudy and make it very clear. That's what revelation is. Now, as you're talking to your coworkers tomorrow, you're going to say, you're not going to believe it. My pastor's taking us through the book of Revelations. And listen, it's just one revelation, okay? There's not multiple revelations. There's one revelation from an angel to a guy named John on the island of Patmos is what the scriptures tell us. And uh, as he is there on the island of Patmos, he writes this down. And what he does is he gives us the events that are soon to take place. And he goes, I'm going to send it to my servant, John. John is the apostle of Jesus. He was uh, apparently a, a guy that church history and, uh, would say and suggest that he escaped a boiling uh, cauldron of oil that they tried to kill him in. And as he escaped, uh, they decided, you know what, we're going to give the old man a break. And they sent him to Patmos. And he was exiled there uh, under uh, Roman emperors. And so Eusebius, uh, a, a, a historian, would say that Perhaps maybe John even got a reprieve from the island of Patmos and died in peace uh, when he, in the year AD 98 or so. This book apparently was probably written between 90 and 95 AD. I lean personally to the earlier years, closer to 90 AD. And it literally is just this unveiling of the things to come. A great tribulation, calamity on the earth, all the things that are going to happen. It's an unveiling of that. 
Verse three says, blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of the prophecy and blessed are those who hear and those who keep what is written in it for the time is near. And what you're gonna see is you're gonna see three instances. You, go, you got one who, who reads, it's a singular tense verb there. You got one who hears, it's a plural tense. And then you got the ones who keep it and it's plural. And the question is, is who is this? And I think if you understand the context of what John is doing, he is writing this revelation, this letter of sorts to seven churches. And these seven churches are going to all have messengers of sorts that are going to teach and they're going to rightly divide the word of truth. That's what the church should do. And so the reason that you have an Acts 2 experience where people, they give the apostles teaching is so that you have one who would teach it. And so that's, I think, the best explanation of that. Blessed is the one who reads. So when you have a congregation of people, you typically will have one who will get up and they'll do what? They'll read and they'll describe what's happening. I think that's a pastor or a teacher. It could be an elder, an overseer, a shepherd of the body, but blessed is the one, singular, a pastor who would teach. Then blessed are the ones who hear. Who's that? The church, okay, that's us, that's the people of God, okay? And so in this day, in that context, it would have been the seven churches. Blessed are the pastor who gets up and teaches. Blessed are those who hear, but blessed are those, plural, again, who keep what is written in it. That's both pastors and teachers. That's all of us, the flock. So the flock of God among us will do well, even according to Revelation 22, in a day and age in which there are people that are gonna be outside of the city one day, you and I would do well to keep what the word says which by and large is the greatest challenge of the church today, is to do what it says. And, and it comes down to, honestly, I think that for so many of us in here, uh, we don't know the word very well, we don't live by the word very well, and we're confused by the word. But the deal is, is this, by the spirit, we should live in it. And the reason we should live in it, and what John says, is because the time of God is near. And the word there, near, is the word in the Greek called ingus, which literally means not necessarily a, a set amount of time, but the idea of a woman who is in labor or expecting labor and, and she's pregnant and she's, she's going to have a child and you don't know exactly when that's going to happen. Now, even today with all of our technology and sonograms, all that, we can almost pinpoint within a, a day or sometimes a week, right? But think about this. In the early church, you didn't have sonograms, you didn't pinpoint weeks or days. You basically had a span of time. And, and what you would realize is that, oh no, I'm pregnant. And that could be, that could be eight to 10 weeks into the process. And then from there, you're like, I know that there's a span of time in which I'm going to have a child. But without technology, it would be some guesswork. Do you understand? And the word there, that word ingus is not a span of time. So for so many of us, we go, well, if the time is near, then I don't understand why we've had to wait almost 20 millennia uh, for Jesus to come back. Because if John's writing this in AD 90 and he's saying the time is near, then we're going, man, we've had a heck of a long time for there to be a gap. Can I get a witness? Yeah. You're like, oh, if he's coming back. And then there's all your little friends, your buddies at church, and they're kind of agnostics. They're like, I don't really know. And if God's word says that he's coming back soon, then why in the world is he taking so long? And here's what you need to know. Listen, every single moment that God tarries, one more person has an opportunity to experience the patience and the loving kindness of God. I often think if God wouldn't have tarried for seven years, how many hundreds of people here in this body at Stone Point Church who would have been standing outside of the city and would not have known the great, kind, and benevolent king that Jesus is. 
And so while we pray, God, would you please come? Because I don't know if you realize it or not, but as a, as a parent and I'm raising young children all under the age of eight, sometimes I question myself going, was that really the selfish move to have children in a day and age like this? It's so difficult. And the answer may be yes, but God has given me a gift of children and I wanna raise them in a way that pleases God. But I'll tell you, it is in a tumultuous and very dark and a very difficult time. And I know that full well. And it is very easy for me as a parent to say, God, would you just come? Would you just save us from all this? And ultimately that's my heart's desire. But I know that in my selfishness, that every time I ask God to come, I'm ultimately damning someone else to a place called hell and separation from God. And so I'm God, I know your timing is right. And I just ask you, Lord, to come. But Lord, thank you for your patience in this day that's called the mystery. And the mystery is the day in which the church lives in now. It's a mystery. It's being revealed. Here's the mystery. The mystery is that God would take his starting quarterback called Israel and set him to the side. And he would raise up a B-team quarterback called the nations, us, Gentiles. And he would allow us to be a part of his great plan. He would lavish his love on us. And while he does so, we don't have all the talent. We don't have all the good looks, but we're coachable. And the spirit lives in us. And what we're doing is we're living for him. And as we live for him, he goes, hey, just be, be ready because I'm gonna come back. And, and until he does, you need to know that it's with anticipation and expectation as if a woman is going to bear a child. It's like Jesus would even say, it's like a thief of the night. It's gonna come, it's gonna happen swiftly and suddenly. Verse four says, John then said to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come and from the seven spirits who are before the throne. And so he gives this salutation uh, uh, in essence in verse four. Now, Paul and Peter and everybody else that writes, they give a salutation of the first three verses. They always greet people. John goes, no, let me just give you the prologue and then I'll greet you in verse four. And so in Greek, he greets him in verse four and he goes, I'm greeting on the behalf of the God who was and is and is to come. The one who is the ancient of days, the God almighty. In Revelation 22, Jesus would say to himself, he's the alpha and the omega. In, in essence, in Greek, the A is alpha and Z is omega. He is the A to Z. He is the beginning and the end. That's what he means. He's going to say to himself again here in a few moments. He is everything we can think of. And then it says, and it's on behalf of the seven spirits who are before his throne. And this right here is something you should pay attention to. The seven spirits of God before his throne. So does that mean that the Holy Spirit is, is seven people? The answer is, I don't think so. But I do think the Holy Spirit is a part of a triune God. You got God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. You think about the Holy Spirit and about how he works and he moves throughout the earth. Matter of fact, in Job, if you remember, there was this kind of exchange between Diabolos, the accuser, Satan, and God. And, and, and Satan goes, there's not one on this earth that would love you if you took away all of the benefits that you have. And so the Spirit of the Lord went and it roamed here and there throughout the entire earth looking for one who would love him and landed on this guy named Job. And so the idea of the Spirit of the Lord is that it is an all-encompassing and it seems to have Isaiah 11 2, seven characteristics that would make it the idea of the seven spirits. In Isaiah 11 2, it just simply says that the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. You got the spirit of the Lord and then the spirit of wisdom and the spirit of understanding, the spirit of counsel, the spirit of might, the spirit of knowledge and the spirit of the fear of the Lord. So it seems to be seven characteristics that the Holy Spirit inhabits. But you're going to see the seven, the seven spirits mentioned in Revelation 1, 4, 3, 1, 4, 5, 5, 6. As well as in 5, 6, it says that the seven eyes of the lamb that are the seven spirits were sent out into all the earth. So it seems that God doesn't miss anything. Does that make sense? Why? Because he is the one who was and is and is to come. He sees and knows all things. 
He is the beginning and the end. You and I think of God in a finite way because we are finite. Matter of fact, if you just think about this, God created space and time, but without God and space and time, you wouldn't understand. And so you go, well, when did God get created himself? He wasn't, he is the creator of all things. And matter of fact, the only reason you struggle with this is because he gave you space and time to enjoy. But God has always been and always will be. He is the ancient of days. He is full of glory. Verse five says, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead and under the ruler of the kings of the earth. It gives two titles. The firstborn of the, t- the dead is not the firstborn. It doesn't mean created. It means this is a messianic title kind of goes along with Romans eight twenty nine. And he's the ruler of the kings of the earth. That means he, everything is subjected under his feet. Matter of fact, in Philippians two, because Jesus died a sacrificial death, it pleased God to give Jesus full authority. You're going to see that full authority displayed in revelation chapter five, when he's going to open the title deed of the earth. He's going to have the ability to open the seven seals. It's an incredible picture in Revelation chapter five. The latter part of five says to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood. That word loves there could be loves in your Bible. How many of you are looking at your Bibles right now? Raise your hand. Okay. Awesome. How many of it says loves, loves. Now, how many of you said loved, loved? Okay. There, we got like three translations that are probably the most accurate. In the Greek, the most accurate trans- translation there would be the word loved. And here's why it's a past tense. Jesus loved us. When did he love us most? He loved us most when he gave his life for our sins by his blood. That's the idea. It's Romans 5, 8, that God demonstrated his love for us in this, that while we were yet sinners, Christ, what? Died for us. Do you get that? Praise God. That's how he displayed it in a past tense love. It was paid for. It was taking place on the cross, which helps us understand that we don't work our way to God. There's nothing that you can do for him to love you more than what he did on the cross. That is the greatest free gift of God that he could give you. You you don't somehow work your way to God. He worked his way down to us and he gave us a free gift of God through the sacrificial death of Jesus on the cross. That's the goal. And it says this, uh, the latter part, uh, by his blood, verse six says, and he made us a kingdom, priest to God and the Father, to glory and dominion forever and ever, amen. Means that because of 1 John 1, 9, if we're faithful to confess, God is faithful to give. He cleanses us of all unrighteousness. He makes us, as Peter says, a kingdom of priests. We're a holy priesthood. It means that we no longer have an intercessor. We don't have a pastor or a priest or somebody we have to go to to have confession of sins. Why? Because Jesus has paid the way. He is the high priest. He is the sacrifice. We come to him and we have full access to the throne of God because we are a holy people. We are the priesthood of believers. That's why when you had the reformation, they took and they said, hey, it's time to give the word of God back to the people. Why? Because the people are God's people. Got it? And you know what we're doing here? We're not even giving you the word back. We're also giving you the work back because there's a whole idea in our our imaginations that the pastor's the professional. We should let him counsel our children. We should let them lead our kids to salvation. Hey, we should pay them to do all our stuff. And listen, you don't pay me to do jack other than to equip you to do the work of ministry. Do you understand? It's to give the work back to the people. We are the church. We are the bride of Christ. We are his sheep. We are his people of his pasture. We, we are the body. 
He is the head. Do you understand why we emphasize so much why you should get in the game? Because there's too much at stake. There's so much at stake. And so here it is. We're the faithful witness because of Christ. And it says, and behold, he is coming with the clouds. Verse seven. And every eye will see him, even those who pierced him and all tribes of the earth will well and account him. Even so, amen. So here it is. Jesus is coming. He's coming with the clouds. And so you can go, is that literally what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 24, verses 26 and 27, that he's literally coming with the clouds. I think he's also, according to Revelation 19, coming with a great cloud of witnesses is what Hebrews 12 would say. So it means that not only is Jesus coming, but the church, the bride of Christ is coming with him, faithfully adorned in white. Listen, just FYI, when he comes, we won't really be doing anything because he's got all of it under control but he's allowing us to be a part of that when he comes with the clouds. And who's gonna see him? Everybody, everyone will see him. You will all take notice, everyone, even those who pierced him. Now, I don't know about you, but what do you think that moment's gonna be like? I could tell you this, that the people who go, you know what? I don't care if God sends me to hell. Listen, that will not be their response when they see him. Just make it very clear. With the authority that God has granted him, Philippians 2, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess before heaven and earth. And that will be the day when everybody sees him. So he's coming and it says, and every tribe on the earth will well on account of him. So there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Do you got that? That's Matthew 24, 30 as well. The nations will see him. Jesus says, I am the Alpha and Omega, verse eight, says the Lord God, who is and was and who is to come. Micah chapter five, verse two says uh, that he is the one that, It's from old. He is the everlasting God. Hebrews 13 verse eight expresses it this way. uh, It says that Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. You got me? Do y'all see the holiness of God here? That's the point. Verse nine says, I, John, your brother, and partner in the tribulation of the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus was on the island called Patmos in the account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I think we've covered that already. He's on this lonely, desolate, barren island in the uh, Western Asian minor part of the sea. Verse 10 says, I was in the spirit on the Lord's day. Now in the spirit here means something, I think different than Galatians 5. Galatians 5 encourages us to walk in the spirit, not to gratify the desires of sinful nature. It means, that, hey, we shouldn't lust and be a part of fornication and adultery and all these other things, right? I don't think that's what John's talking about. I think what John is saying is, I had an experience that most of you probably are never gonna have. And I think the church in some ways has been trying to formulate and recapture this experience in lots of different dramatic ways. I don't think it's gonna ever happen. I think, what jo- what, I think what John is saying is that I got some sort of revealed truth on the island of Patmos that you will never experience. And I know that maybe we're a little bit jealous by that, but if you ever see John's response, I mean, he drops to his knees multiple times in this, this book. I mean, he, he, he gets to see some truth, but whatever it is, I, it's an experience that you're gonna see him say something about, again, Revelation 1.10, you see it, Revelation 4.2, Revelation 17.3, and Revelation 21.10, he's gonna talk about being in the spirit. The latter part of verse 10 says, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, write what you see in the book and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, to Smyrna, to Pergamum, to Thyatira, to Sardis, to Philadelphia, and to Laodicea. That's what this book is for, it's for those churches. It will be circulated across the church at the time and to the body of Christ. Verse 12 says, then I turned and I saw the voice that was speaking to me and turning, I saw seven golden lampstands. Now, this is not like a menorah that uh, it's one stand and seven candlesticks shooting up. It seems to be seven separate lampstands lampstands, all each individually different. And in the midst of the seven lampstands, there was one like a son of man and he was clothed with a long robe, which would have been a picture of royalty. 
something with, with, uh, with definitely power and authority and with a golden sash around his chest. Now, the golden sash would have been the Old Testament, the picture of a high priest and the, the ephod, that, the clothing that he would have wore as a priest. So it seems that he has some sort of a sash around his chest, probably resembling that of an ephod. The hairs of his head were like white, white wool, like snow. Probably the idea of purity, uh, Isaiah 1.18, but not only that, but also the, the idea of the antiquity and the uh, eternal state of this holy being, that he is the first and the last. He's the alpha, the omega. He is the ancient of days. He was the one who is and is or was and is and is to come. Do y'all get that? That's the idea there. And his feet were burnished bronze, refined in the furnace. And his voice was like the roar of many waters. When you look at his feet, the burnished bronze. The idea is that bronze holds up well under fire. Now think about this for just a second. Who held up under fire really well? Jesus. Hebrews 4.15, for we do not have a high priest who's unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. We have one who is tempted in every way, just as we are. So did Jesus endure temptation? Yes. Was he refined by fire? Yes. Did he prove to be true? Yes. He was tempted just like we are yet. He was without sin. Got it? He is the Alpha and the Omega, he is the one who stood up to the test of time and his voice was like the roar of many waters. Holy, pure, vibrant. And somehow I think I just missed, his eyes were like the flame of a fire. So if you can understand the judgment that encompasses the holy God, this is a guy that you're not gonna see face to face. Even though Moses longed to, God covered him in the cleft of the rock, Exodus 33, I believe. And he said, no, you can't bear to see my face. That's the idea. Ezekiel has an encounter with God. Look what Ezekiel says in Ezekiel 1, 26 through 28. Above the expanse of the heads, I looked, I saw a throne of sapphire. High above on the throne was a figure like that of a man. I saw that from what appeared to be his waist up. It looked like a glowing metal, full of fire. And that from there down, he looked like fire, brilliant light surround him. That appearance of a rainbow and clouds on a rainy day, it was the radiance around him. Daniel, in Daniel chapter 7, verses 9 and 10, later in the chapter, we'll speak about it a little bit more, but 9 and 10, he says, And I looked, thrones were placed, and the ancient of days, remember this holy one, the eternal one, and antiquity, he took his seat. Clothing was white as snow, and his hair was like pure wool, his throne was fire flames, its wheels and burning fire, a stream of fire issue came out from before him. A thousands of thousands served him, 10,000, some 10,000 stood before it and court set in judgment and the books were opened. Do you understand the holiness of God? That's what we're trying to see. And then in the midst of his presence, verse 16, it says in his right hand, there were seven stars. Verse 20 tells us what those stars were. We'll get to it in a minute. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. And uh, the idea of the sharp two-edged sword is the Greek word rumphaya, which literally means this huge sword. It's not mahira, whether you would get in like um, the Ephesians 6, that you would have the sword of the spirit, the word of God. That's kind of more like a dagger in a sense, maybe where we get the word machete from, something small. This is a huge sword and it's meant to kill and it's meant to destroy. And so when Jesus comes back in Revelation 19, you see a sword from his mouth. And what that means is I'm going to mow down anybody that that opposes me. That's the holiness that John is talking about. And his face was like that of the shining sun. Interesting enough, it resembles Matthew 17 too, the transfiguration when uh, the apostles encountered Jesus uh, up on the mountain or God, when Jesus with them encountered God on the mountain, his face shone like that of the sun. Verse 17, look at John's response. This is the response that's gonna be a classic response when you see God, when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though I was dead. There is no other response to God. 
the greatest response is to be dead at the feet of Jesus. Do you know when you're dead at the feet of Jesus, he can live through you? Guys, the greatest tragedy to the church today is that so many of us want to proclaim Jesus and we want to live our own lives. No, he's saying, what did it look like if you died to your own life and you came and you just fell at the feet of Jesus? And so John just, he shows us that. He lives at the feet of Jesus. And then he laid his right hand on me saying, fear not, I'm the first and the last, I'm the living one. I died and behold, I'm alive forevermore and I have the keys of death and Hades. Amen. He goes, nothing will overcome me. Nothing, not death, not sin, not the grave. First Corinthians 15, even though the angels begin to possibly celebrate because Jesus crucified, guess what? Jesus is alive forevermore and he overcomes. That's why we gather here. And he goes, if Jesus didn't overcome the world, then your faith is futile and you might as well go home and you might as well go to the lake or plant some flowers or do something on this beautiful day. Because if you're gathering for any other reason than the fact that Jesus is enough, then man, you're missing it. And he goes, I have the keys of death and Hades. Verse 19 says, then hey, write down what you've seen, that those who are and those who will take place after this. He goes, what do, you, what do I want you to write down? I want you to write down the things that you've seen. That's Revelation 1. I want you to, I want you to write down the things that are. That's gonna be Revelation 2 and 3. And I want you to write down the things that are to come, which is gonna be Revelation 4 through 22. And then he says in verse 20, as for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars, are the angels and the seven churches, or the seven lampstands uh, of the seven churches and the lampstands, the seven of them are the seven churches. Here's what that means. The lampstands, all separate individual, those are the seven churches. Those are the seven churches that John's writing to. And he goes, and there's seven stars. And those seven stars are these angels that are in, in God's hands. Now, here's where you got to decide. And, and I'm going to give you my opinion on it. And then we're going to close. You got to go, well, what are they? Are they actual angels? Like, are they guardian angels over the churches? That's a possibility. Maybe we all have guardian angels over all the churches, possibly. The word, though, there in the Greek is the word angelos, which is the same word that you would get angel, but it's also the same word in the Greek that you would speak of as a messenger. And I think that's the appropriate context. Matter of fact, if you remember, there was one who was a forerunner for Jesus. His name was John the Baptist, and he was also an angelos. Matter of fact, um, you would see that in Matthew chapter 11, verse 10, that he was the messenger, the one to come. And it's the same exact Greek word. And so the question is, you got to ask yourself, is it that there is a, uh, an angel that is authority and, and overseeing the churches, or is it just a messenger of God? I think it's a messenger of God. Matter of fact, I think that it's the pastors of the seven churches. I think it's the messengers. Now that's my opinion. I can't prove that concretely, but here's why. I think that it would be a little bit weird to have seven angels um, in heaven with Jesus and him holding them in the right hand. That's just me. The other thing is, is do we have angels around us? Yes, I believe that wholeheartedly. But the question is, is what do you think he's trying to say? Here's what I think. I think this is what the picture of it, and, and we're close. Jesus, the one with full authority, the beginning and the end, has the seven messengers, the pastors and the churches right there in his presence. And I think he means that these are my churches and even the gates of hell will not prevail against it. These are the messengers and I will protect them. You remember how it started out? Blessed are the one who speaks, blessed are the one who hears and blessed are those who live by it. I think that's the picture of Revelation 1. And what he's saying is, hey, you're the church. You're the bride of Christ. You are my sheep. You hear my voice. You obey. Would you walk in obedience? And I pray that this is enough motivation to do that just being enamored at the holiness of God.
Amen? Now that was really fast. And here's what I'm gonna do. We're gonna bless you by posting all my notes on the web so you can go back and play this 10 times and look at my notes, okay? We love you, church. Again, don't be mesmerized about a second coming of Christ if you're not gonna live for the first coming. And so may we get on the team and may we get on board and may we be faithful because God is faithful. Let me pray for us. God, would you use us, teach us, mold us, shape us and conform us to the patterns, not of this world, but of you, the one true God, the one who is and was and is to come. You are the alpha and the omega. You have rightly given us the word of truth to divide it. You have given us all things that pertain to life and godliness. Would you help us to live for you? Would you help us to spur each other on towards love and good deeds as we expectantly and patiently await for the the return of the one true king? We know you're coming. Would we be faithful until you do? We love you. And would you bless us and keep us and make your face shine upon us as we leave this place? And everybody said, Amen. amen.